technology involved with this more than just uh, uh, teaching you church history. Uh, and I'm glad it's a small group like this. Uh, it's a thing where I think we can get more done. But uh, obviously what you're going to get out of this class is going to be based on you know, what you're going to put into it. Um, this class will be without a doubt uh, the most uh, intense class, and I use the word intense not in a hard way, uh, but the, uh, we will go through everything uh, unlike probably we've ever done anything else in, the, in our church. This class right here, we're going to meet every other week. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how, how long it, it, it would, might go, but I can tell you this. When we're done with this, uh, uh, there'll be nothing that you, you won't know about church history. Uh, in my lifetime, I have probably read uh, two to 3,000 books on church history. I spent 15 years of my life, uh, probably two or three hours a day, uh, getting material that I've got tonight. Um, I did it originally as a manuscript for a book, but <clears throat> once there, I saw the other books that were out there, you know, it, and I didn't know it at the time, but it became my book on church history. And that's what I want to try to get you to do. Uh, if, if I would, uh, I have probably 19 legal pads uh, that represent uh, everything in church history that I'm going to give you, and I'll work through those legal pads as we, as we go through them. But uh, I made up my mind that uh, I was going to, uh, to get it down in a format that I could read it over and over and over again. And to me, you know, I'm as excited about doing this class as you probably are about taking it, because, uh, you know, I read this thing about twice a year just to keep up on it. And for me to teach it again will be, for me, like the first time I taught it, it'll be, I'll, I'll learn as much from it as, as you do and uh, based on other things that I've learned since the last time I taught it, which has probably been three or four, five years ago probably been 15 or 16 years since I taught it in the intensity that we're going to go through it. Uh, but we will, when we're done, we will know where every church and every denomination came from. There won't be a doubt in your mind uh, where it all came from, where it all started, uh, where it got on track, where it got off track, and uh, where it's at today. We'll also know every key man in church history that you need to know, good and bad. We'll define them. We'll find out where they're at. We'll have categories for them uh, as we build this thing. Uh, you will have, probably when we're done, the most complete study of manuscript evidence that you could ever hope to have anywhere. Manuscript evidence. I learned, you know, the, in my own life, I learned that manuscript evidence for where I was and who I was hanging with was my survival to get through. So, um, you know, I, I, I made it a point to understand it to the degree that better than most people could ever do it. And you'll have that, you know, uh, when we're done, we will define everything about that. You'll understand everything about manuscript evidence there is. And I'll show you how easy it really is to break it down. And uh, much of what you get, even in the books that we have over here, is, is hard to follow because uh, they, don't, they, they write a lot of it like pretending you already know a lot of stuff, and when you don't, then it gets confusing. Well, we're going to solve that for you. Um, we're going we're gonna to comp uh, compare all of the events in secular history and everything that ever took place for the New Testament church, anyhow, 
uh, in Europe and around the world, and we're going to tie those events in so that you have a good comprehension of that. Um, I will give you, uh, throughout the process, a list of books. Uh, how to do you a great favor. I'll save you a lot of time in reading the stuff that isn't worth reading that I had to go through to find out it wasn't worth reading. And you'll benefit from the things that I've kept that I thought were absolutely invaluable. One of them is that little book I, which many of you got off the internet a couple of months ago on Thursday night, that uh, Church History by Carnes. You'll never find a better book on church history than that uh, as far as uh, a non-biblical church history. But it's invaluable. It's invaluable. I've got another little book that I was going to bring tonight that I forgot to bring it, but uh, it's a paperback, and I don't even remember where I found it. But it's one of the most key books that I've ever used. It's called Who's Who in Church History. And it lists probably six or 7,000 people uh, that, uh, and gives you a small bio on each one of them and where they're at in church history. It's invaluable. It's invaluable. And uh, so we're going, to, uh, we're going to take all the work that I put in it, and we're going to try to make it easier for you to grasp it. But I would suggest that you do this. I would suggest that you start your own book on church history, uh, that you start your own uh, syllabus of material just like I did. You want to build a resource uh, book on church history. And now you're not going to be able to do it by sitting down here, you know, trying to keep up with me because we've got to move through it. But what I did, and what you're going and what I did was a lot harder than what you got to do. I had to read untimed books and then sort it all out, sift it all out, decide what I wanted, put it into a format. That's already done for you. What you're going to get from me is 100% truth and 100% accuracy. You don't have to wonder about a stick of it. Everything is right on the money. So you need to take it, develop it into a book for you that you down the line four or five years from now can keep going back to and revamping yourself on church history. There'll be nothing, nothing that we will not go through uh, in church history that in our study. I mean, this is going to be the most exhaustive study that we've ever taken. And uh, there's a lot of material, but it's not as hard as it would seem if you just stay up with it. So that's, that's what we're going to do. And I also said this, that for those of you that this is, you know, uh, this, I, I was going to do this in my home because we normally had about, and, and I was just taking one of my counseling sessions, you know, from 6.30 to uh, 8, uh, and uh, basically just use my counseling, one of my counseling spots to do it, uh, and just look at it as that, but then we had more people, we had to do it over here, which is fine, but my point is this, just like any other counseling class, you know, we have Bible study on Thursday night, this is not this class is not instead of Bible study. This class is <laughs> along with Bible study because it all goes together. So just so you understand that. Now, the first thing I want to do tonight is I want to lay some background down. This background will be absolutely vital when we get into it a little bit later on. And, um, you know, some of it you've probably already heard before, but that's okay. Um, but we've got to lay the background down so you understand uh, when we get into this, uh, how it's all going to work. Now, there's no question, and we all know this, there's no question as to the Bible being the final authority for us as Christians. We know that. And uh, John 17, 17 talks about uh, thy word is truth. And, and with that in mind, truth is not only, and you hear me say it all the time, truth is not only the missing element in Christianity today, in churches, it certainly is. I mean, uh, Christianity does not have an absolute final authority on, any, on everything that they can base it off of. Uh, 
But at the same time, truth is also absent in, uh, in the aspect of studying church history. And it's a, it's, a, it's a situation that has now been going on for probably over 100 years that really has destroyed the aspect of a biblical church history. Now, church history by a Bible definition uh, must be primarily the history of the local assemblies which start in the book of Acts in the New Testament. And because that's what they are, the New Testament has to be the key to understanding church history. And that is vital. The only book we're going to really use to study church history proper is the Bible itself. Because a study of church history is the study of the local assemblies that start in the book of Acts and work them, work them way through history. And uh, therefore, the New Testament has to be the key to understanding our church history. And uh, when you start to read books on church history, I mean, there's just millions of books on church history. Some of the more prominent ones were guys by like Dollinger who wrote and Walker and Fisher. Uh, Carnes, the one I had you get. I guess the standard would be uh, Philip Schaff. And uh, along with Philip Schaff in second place probably would be the two volumes set by, by, uh, by Newman. But um, uh, Philip Schaff is probably the, uh, the number one uh, book today or series today on church history in most churches with most pastors and in probably all the Bible colleges. Now, in every case, the material that these guys wrote, and I don't care uh, who it was, uh, they really forms for us what I, I call a, a, an anti-church history uh, because uh, it's, uh, it, it's not based on the Bible. When Philip Schaff writes his eight volumes, and uh, they're very thick books. And when he writes uh, his eight volumes, uh, which probably run over 500,000 words total, uh, Philip Schaff is about as conscious of the power of God and the movement of Holy Spirit of God coming down through history when he writes. I mean, David Letterman could do a better job with it. I mean, it's just absolutely, he has no clue of what's going on. And every case when these guys write, the Bible is eliminated as the final authority uh, and it's not even consulted as the principal guidelines when men sit down to write. And yet, these are the works that are held up today in Christianity. If you would go to Bible college someplace and they would take a course on church history, uh, I guarantee you Philip Schaff would, uh, would, uh, would be the book that they follow and the book that they use. Each writer takes the position that the devil really didn't care about church history, therefore needed not to be mentioned in the books. Their line of reasoning is followed by the unsaved historians trying to blindly define some purpose and meaning to all history as they write. And the bottom line is this. Uh, well, a guy, another set of books that sometime you ought to buy if you can get them. Don't pay a lot of money for them because they're not really worth it. But this on the secular side of things with a guy by the name of Will Durant. Will Durant wrote a series of books on the history of, of civilization. And I think his volumes run probably 12, 14, 15 books. And uh, they're way out of print, I'm sure. Uh, like I said, don't spend any more than 50 cents for them if you ever get a chance to buy them. Uh, but Will Durant was a historian, unsaved man. And uh, he wrote, a, he wrote a, a, a lengthy volumes on, on human history. And he's about as accurate, you know, uh, uh, it's unbelievable how that he just does, he misses the mark of understanding history. 
And the reason why is because he has no reference point. And once you throw out God and the devil out of the Bible and out of history, once you eliminate God and the devil from church history, and it just becomes a study of men, places, councils, churches, doctrines, decrees, you're lost, man. Now, this is why the Bible, in, in two verses, we're not going to spend a lot of time with it, but two verses that, that uh, you are well aware of now, uh, found in Proverbs 22, verse 28, and Proverbs 23, verse 10, where the Bible says and tells us that we're not to remove the landmarks. Now, verse uh, 22, uh, tw uh, Proverbs 22, 28 talks about remove not the ancient landmarks. That'll be the nation of Israel. Well, you want to study history in the Old Testament format, Israel is the focal point by which you study it. But in 23.10, it says, remove not the landmarks which the fathers have set. Now, that'll be the New Testament, and that will be the church. And uh, you don't go three verses in your Bible before you find out what history is going to be all about, what life is going to be all about, and of course, uh, it's going to be uh, God and the devil. And all history revolves around that. And when these guys write and they lose sight of that, they pick up kind of like a, uh, an evolutionary concept of how church history goes. And uh, for Bible believers, and as Bible believers with a final authority, uh, we know that uh, uh, once we start to see, uh, get into the Bible, we start to see some uh, warning signs begin to flash. Some lights begin to go off. Uh, and we find these in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, and they're there because God is showing us some things that we need to learn that when we get into church history, that uh, they start to keep us from getting off track. I told the people, and most of you were in that class when we started, about our, when we did our Bible basics class, I told you that one of the interesting things about the Bible is the fact that uh, in the Old Testament, when you open up your Bible, you have uh, Genesis, which is the book of the beginnings. And everything, everything in the Old Testament is defined for us in the book of Genesis. And then you have four books that cover the same period of time, which uh, make uh, historical books around uh, after Genesis. And that'll be Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those four books are four books that are written during the same period of time. Each one of them give an account. But in the Old Testament, you have the definitive book first. That would be Genesis. Then you have the four books that give history. The reason why he did that in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, all the way through your Old Testament, you have a complete running account of history from 4004 B.C. all the way up to 606 B.C. I mean, almost 3,600 years, you have an unbroken recording of history that you can basically, if you know what you're doing, you can basically follow the history of the Old Testament in, in, in years, if not months in some places. It's that concise. But when you get into the New Testament, remember I told you this when we did our Bible basics, when you get into the New Testament, it changes. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are your four historical books, which again, just like Leviticus or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they cover the same period of time. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cover the period of time that they wander for 40 years. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover the period of the first coming of Christ from his birth up to his death, about 33 years. But they cover the same period of time. The difference is the definitive book in the New Testament is put in a different place than it is in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have Genesis, the definitive book. Then you have the four historical books. In the New Testament, you have the four historical books first, then the definitive book, which is the book of Acts. And you remember I told you that the reason why that is is because you do not have a running account. This is, this is absolutely vital for you to understand this. Acts ends right here. We go up here to 90 A.D., somewhere around here, and John finishes out Revelation, and Matthew and those guys write sometime before that. But basically, when you get to the end of the book of Acts, there is no historical concurrence of history. You don't have the New Testament like you do the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you can, after Exodus, you can go to Joshua. You can go to Judges. You can go to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You can track it right down. When you're done with, in, in your Bible, when you get to the book of Acts, in the timeline frame now, when you get to the book of Acts, there's no history after that. And you're either left to your own devices to figure out history, or you're smart enough to realize and see that God changed the position of the two definitive books. Where in the Old Testament, the definitive book that lays out everything in the Old Testament was first, then four historical books. In the New Testament, the four historical books are first, and then the book of Acts, which becomes your definitive book. The book of Acts, ladies and gentlemen, formed for us the nuclear, nucleus structure of church history. God did not want us to get down into all of this period of time down through here and wonder what was going on. So you know what he did? He wrote the things that we needed to be able to discern history down through the next 2,000 years in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles has in it everything you and I need to know and understand that when we get into this period of time here, we don't get lost and we don't enter into, as Proverbs says, the fields of the fatherless. We don't get lost in history wondering, is this guy a good guy? Is this guy a bad guy? Is this situation a good situation to be in? Uh, what should I be doing? And this is the vital aspect of having the Bible as the base text for church history. No writer on church history, other than maybe one or two of them that we have in our bookstore over here. No writer on church history has ever seen and understood what I just have given you. Therefore, when they write church history, they're lost because they have no reference point to show them in history what's right and what's wrong. And of course, again, I'm going to say it one more time so you get it. In the Old Testament, God gave you the definitive book first. It was Genesis. And then he gives you four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that cover the same 40-year period. And it starts the historical line going through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he puts the four historical books first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he puts the definitive book, which is the book of Acts. And the reason why he did that is because he knew after the end of the book of Acts, you were going into church history proper. 
Now, I know you say, well, in my Bible, there's lots of books after Acts. Yes, but they're not in a chronological order. That's my point. There is no history after the book of Acts. All those other books are all written during the book of Acts or shortly thereafter. There is no running history of the New Testament church after the book of Acts. That's why God put that definitive book last after the four historical books so you and I could figure out some things about history. Now, let's look at some of the things that he put in there. The book of Acts will be your foundation of church history. It forms the nucleus. I said structure a minute ago. That's not correct. It's the foundation of church history. And uh, you're going to find, uh, and this is how I've got it listed in my Bible, and it makes it easy. You're going to find in the book of Acts, uh, how many have ever read the book by Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities? All right. Well, in the book of Acts, you have another little story going on there, and it's called The Tale of Three Cities. And these three cities begin to be defined in the book of Acts that when we get down in church history, these understanding these three cities are going to protect us from getting messed up and screwed up with what goes on. The first city mentioned in the book of Acts, well, it's not, this is not the order, but the first one I'm going to give you will be Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt, throughout the book of Acts, will always be a negative effect toward Bible Christianity. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that Egypt is a type of the world in the Bible. You'll notice that back in the Old Testament in Genesis that Joseph made them promise that they would not leave his bones in Egypt. Jacob made a similar promise. It was in Exodus chapter 12 that God delivered them out of Egypt. The first time you find Alexandria defined in the book of Acts will be Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. And Alexandria, Egypt will always be associated with two bad doctrines. And the main bad doctrine they're associated with will be baptism regeneration for salvation. The second one will be their bad doctrine in general. They, they, they corrupt the Word of God. Now, that's very important, ladies and gentlemen, because I'll tell you why. When we get into this time period right here, when we get into church history, When we get into that time period right here, you're going to find that the, as the gospel was going around the, getting ready to go around the world and Christianity was being introduced to everybody around the world, what the devil was doing is the devil had the seat of knowledge for the whole world from an unsafe standpoint. The great philosophers, the great minds, the great scientists, the great educators, and the greatest minds uh, that the world has ever seen from the worldly standpoint are all collected right down around this time in, guess where, Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt at this time had the greatest library on the face of the planet. It was the intellectual hotspot of the world. It had, taken the, it had taken the teachings of Aristotle and the Greeks and all of the things that they had uh, come up with and all the things that they had done and uh, added all the other junk to it, and now they stood as the pinnacle of learning. They are the opposite of what God is doing in the New Testament. You want to remember Alexandria, Egypt. Never be a good source. Never. The book of Acts defines that for you so when you get down here someplace, 
five, six, eight hundred years later, see, and you find somebody coming up and telling you that they got something that they got from Alexandria, Egypt, you know what to do with it. See, that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you can just follow along after you go through Exodus, go to Leviticus, go to Numbers, go to Deuteronomy, then go to Judges, then, or Joshua, then go to Judges, then go to 1 Samuel. You can follow it right through. You can't do that in the New Testament. So in the book of Acts, he told you that things that you need to look out for. This is called the background of church history. Without it, church history, will you'll get lost as can be. All right, the second thing that you want to look at, or the second city, and most of you already know about this, will be Antioch of Syria. It's Antioch of Syria where they're first called Christians in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Antioch of Syria is the hotbed of New Testament Christianity. Antioch of Syria... Uh, is where they put the first Bible teachers in Acts chapter 13. It's where they send out the first missionaries in Acts chapter 13. Antioch of Syria will always represent the positive side of church history. Antioch of Syria is at its lowest common denominator. You and me as Bible believers tonight, you and me, I can't speak for First Baptist, Second Baptist, Baptist Church, or the Willow Trees, or whatever. I'm talking about us at Old Pass Baptist Church. Antioch is our basic roots of where we started. When I tell you over and over again that my goal is to build a New Testament church based on the book of Acts, I'm talking about the church of Antioch. Antioch is the model church for you and for me. And it will always be a positive thing in the Bible and in church history. All right, the next thing that you're going to learn here uh, that we need to be careful of that's laid out in the book of Acts is the word councils or creeds. Every time you find a council in a sense of somebody getting together uh, to... Uh, uh, they're getting together to in a meeting or group someplace for Christianity... Uh, they'll always be against the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one place in the New Testament where a council is ever good, and that's in Matthew chapter 5, and that there is a council in the millennium. But when you come through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll always find that the scribes and the Pharisees took counsel against him. In the book of Acts, you'll find that when Christianity starts to birth itself and starts to move through Asia Minor and move into the, uh, keep moving and growing, you're going to find that there are people that take a counsel. You'll find it several times in the book of Acts. When you come down through church history, you're, here they are for you on our chart. And this is another reason why I'm, I never thought of this. This is the reason why I'm glad we're doing it here because I got this chart to work off of. Council in Nicaea. Council of Constantinople, Council of Ephesus, Council of Clarendon, Council of Constantinople 869, Council of Latrine, Council of Latrine, Council of Latrine, spent a lot of time on Latrine, Latrine, Council of Latrine, Council of Lyons, Council of Trent. Those councils are religious councils that come up through church history. And if you don't know the book of Acts tells you that councils are bad, and to stay away from them, when you get into church history, you might think that they were something to do with God. In the book of Acts, every council is against God and God's church and God's program. In church history, every council, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, is against what God is doing. It's the book of Acts that tells you that. 
And uh, you're going to find that uh, those councils didn't stop there. They come all the way up to where we're at today. The National Council, the Ecumenical Council, and the Federal Council. And, uh, but they, uh, in church history proper, as we come down through there, you're going to find that that's, thing, that, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be uh, a, a negative thing. This will be invaluable to you. When you learn these tools and these backgrounds, it'll be invaluable to you uh, when we come on down through church history to be able to tell uh, whether it's God or the devil doing what. Now, the next thing we need to realize is, uh, is that history itself will be our greatest teacher. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that history is in a cycle. And what I'm going to show you right now is one of the greatest things that you'll ever see. And this thing is probably, without a doubt, the greatest single thing I ever learned about history. And uh, some of you may know it. Some of you, most of you probably do not. But uh, this, is, this, is, uh, uh, this is called in, uh, in secular history. Uh, church history follows the scientific law of, of thermodynamics. And the law of th second law of thermodynamics tells you that things don't run up, they run down. And that's why you're going to find in, in church history, you're going to find this process continuing all the way through this. God is, uh, uh, you remember, the, the God of creation is the God of truth, which is also the God of history, which is also the God of the Bible. This is why that all periods and all dispensations in the Bible all end in disaster. When God put, when God did it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, how did it end? When he put Adam and Eve down in the garden, how did it end? When he put Noah down on the plate, how did it end? See? Uh, when, the, when he made, took the Jews out of Egypt and, and put them into the promised land, how did it end? See? Every period in the Bible ends in disaster. And church history is the same format. And the format for it is very, very, very important for you to grasp. And that is how it works like this. All history revolves around four cycles. Man, movement, machine, monument. In other words, everything in history starts with a man. That man gets it from God. God gives him the burden of his heart. It becomes a movement. As becomes a movement, if he's not careful, it comes to the place where it starts to go down this downhill slide, and then it becomes a machine. And then after it becomes a machine, it winds up being a monument. Let me show you what I mean. Martin Luther. What did he do? He broke out of the Roman Catholic Church. And they started the Reformation. He broke with the Roman Catholic Church over baptism for salvation, and he started a Lutheran church. All right? There's the man, Martin Luther. He broke out of the Roman Catholic Church. There's the movement, the Lutheran church. Now, as long as it starts with a man and goes to the movement and stays with the movement, it's 100% okay. What happened with Martin Luther is they got past the movement and it became a machine. You know what it means when it becomes a machine? It becomes secularized. It becomes 
first rate. It's like starting a church. And the church starts out with just hardline preaching and doing what God calls them to do. And then somebody gets the bright idea, well, they got to have a school. So we get a school. And we get a school, and somebody, we got to get teachers to come in and teach. And then somebody says five years later down the line, we need to have a college. So now they get a college. And somebody says, well, we got to be accredited. So you got to bring accredited teachers. They're teaching the accredited school. They bring in their damnable heresies. And somewhere along the process, this thing becomes a slick thing that you got to keep building more buildings, getting more assets, getting more students, get the thing going, and you lose the whole purpose of the man and the movement. And when it goes from a man to a movement, to a machine, it dies spiritually and it winds up being a monument. You know what the Lutheran church is today? A monument. And it isn't even a very good one. It's a monument. It went from a man, Martin Luther, to a movement, broke out of the Roman Catholic Church, got back to the ecclesiastical crap that all the other churches were doing, went into a machine, wound up being a monument. And today, it's as dead as anything you'll ever see in your life. Let's look at another one. Salvation Army. It starts with a man, General Booth. That man had a burden. He put together the Salvation Army. That was his movement. For about 100 years or so, that thing was a soul-winning thing that just would, would, its one goal was to win people to Christ, and they won them to Christ, and it, and it was a thousand things that spun off of the Salvation Army. Then you know what happened? They went into a machine. They got socialized. They started going, getting the big trucks and going around to the disaster places, getting federal money going down to places where disasters took place, and when they got the federal money, they got big trucks, they got all kinds of food, they got all, and somewhere in the process, they just quit for giving, to give the gospel, see? And once they got federal money coming in, they couldn't give the gospel anyhow, so they went from a man to a movement to a machine. Now they're a monument. They don't get anybody saved. They just do well to change their name because they're not the Salvation Army anymore. I mean, if Judge o. Booth came back and walked through the Salvation Army Church or headquarters, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. Everything in history runs around it. Let's look at a secular one. Here's a man, Adolf Hitler. He had a movement, Nazis. And of course, you know why the Germans lost the war. They tied their shoes and little Nazis, and they couldn't run when they came after them. We got a man, Adolf Hitler who puts together a movement, got into a machine and tried to take on the whole world, didn't he, huh? His thousand-year Reich, you know what his mistake was? Why, he had England on her knees. He conquered France. He conquered every country in Europe, had England on her knees. But because he wasn't satisfied with that, he went and attacked Russia and got on a three-front war and couldn't sustain it. Now it's a monument. It works in everywhere you go. I don't care what it is in history. I don't care what it is. You take John Wesley. John Wesley was a man. John Wesley started a movement, the Methodist Church. It did the same thing the Lutheran Church did and turned into a high-order ecclesiastical machine. And now it's as dead as the Lutheran Church and it's a monument. All history follows that four cycle. You can see it in everything that you do. I don't care whether it's a Baptist church. Let's take Bob Jones University. There's a good one. 
That was a Christian one, contemporary one. Bob Jones, Sr., was a Methodist evangelist. Loved the Lord, believed the book. One of the greatest preachers you'll ever hear, one of the greatest evangelists that, ever hear, that you'll ever hear, he was a man. And he had the idea to treat, teach young men and young ladies the, the ministry. So he started a school, Bob Jones University. Somewhere along the line, they went, uh, they went to the point where uh, they weren't just preaching the Bible. They wanted to be accredited, and they wanted to uh, bring in all the different things that all the other universities had. You know what they are today? They're a monument. They're a monument. They're as dead as a doornail. Now, this church, same format. Started with a man, that'd be me, went to a movement. As long as this church stays with that thing right there, we're good to go. The moment we get fancy, the moment we start putting in all the different things and bringing in all of the cultural things and bringing in all the things that Christianity had, you know what they are, big screens and you don't have to bring your Bible anymore. You know what? Don't have to worry about tithing. We have direct deposit now. We can do all of these things. We have praise people up there singing so you don't have to sing. We entertain you and all of those things. When you get from there into there, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump, and you're here. That's why this church can't ever get past here. And dare say, it will never get past here as long as I'm pastor. Now, why is that? Because I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson. I learned that everything in history starts with a man, whether it's secular or Christian. It starts with a man, and it goes to a movement. And as long as you stay with the man in the movement, you're good to go. The moment you take from the movement and go into a machine where you get fancy, where you got to have the best, where your sound system has to cost you $600,000, where you have to have an organ or a piano, or you got to have this, or you got to have that because people won't come, and you got you to put this out there and do all of this. The moment you lose sight of the greatest single asset you have is not one tangible thing in this building. It's the book that's on that pulpit. Once you lose sight of that, you're into this, and when you're into this, there's no stopping you. You're going here. That's why when you go to the average church today, they're just like the Catholic churches over in Europe. They're monuments. They're monuments. They're monuments. Nobody ever gets saved. Nothing ever gets done. But boy, they've got everything the world has. You can get a McDonald's burger in it. You can get a Starbucks coffee in it. You can get to the gym. You can do this. You can do all the things you want. You can play basketball, racquetball. You can play tennis. You can get everything here except the Bible. Monument. Man. Movement. Machine. Monument. Now let me show you one close to home. Southern Baptist Convention back in the 30s, in the 20s and the 30s. Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Southern Baptists back in the early 1900s and um, up through the 1920s and 30s were, uh, were, the, were the Baptist churches in America. By the 1920s, they were in deep apostasy. They were teaching evolution in the schools. They were teaching that the Bible was fairy tales. And uh, that's why the Southern Baptist Convention and the churches got such a liberal side to it today. A man broke out of that whose name was J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris was trained by the Southern Baptist Convention, and of course, uh, he did not, uh, uh, did not follow anything the Southern Baptist, he, he, he saw the fallacy of it, he, uh, he'd give them fits all of their life, 
he had the biggest Southern Baptist Convention church in the whole convention. And uh, when the deacons tried to fire him uh, because he was preaching the hot word of God, uh, he stood up and fired the deacons. I mean, this guy was fireball. He was something else. Uh, He broke out of the Southern Baptist Convention. You and I, you and I have our Bible tonight. You and I have our Bible tonight and are a fundamental Baptist church without all of the garbage because of one man in the initial stage, and that is J. Frank Norris. Not so much the Bible, but certainly, uh, certainly uh, the independent concept of breaking out of the convention. And the bottom line is this. It started with a man, and it went into a movement. And he started his own Bible institute. He didn't call it a Bible college. I've seen pictures of it down in Texas where on a, it was eight blocks long and four blocks square. Huge place. And in big red and white letters on the sign was, uh, uh, I forget the name of it, Bible, Bible something college. And then after that, the only college in the country teaching the authorized 1611 as the Word of God. That was a stand. That was a stand. After he died, Right before he died, they broke out and started what we know today as the BBF, the Baptist Bible Fellowship, started from J. Frank Norris. It went into a political conglomeration the size of uh, any government on this planet, and it went into a fast, slick machine. And today, the very movement that this man started to bring us out of it went into this mode, and now it's in this mode. And out of this thing here, you got a handful of men and churches that stayed with the movement that never went here. The man that taught me the Bible was a man that came out of J. Frank Norris that came into that thing and didn't go any farther. You know what he taught me? Bob, don't go any farther than right there. And he put out probably 600 preachers in his lifetime who got the same thing. I can't tell where they're at today, but they got the same thing I got. Bob, don't go any farther than there. That's the history of man, movement, machine, and monument. And when you start coming down through church history, that will be the format that all history falls into. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. You know when you're happiest? Really? You're happiest when you don't have a lot of things in your life and all you have is God. You realize the more things you have in life, the more you got to worry about taking care of them? You realize the more money you got, the more you got to worry about losing the stock market and losing your investment, losing this. You realize if you don't have anything but God, that's the best state you can be in if you can really believe that contentment with godliness is a great gain. But it's true of you and me. Starts with me going into a movement, my relationship with God. But then, oh, I got to have things, see? Things. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I got to have two of what I have and then get three and then get different colors of them. And pretty soon, you, you know, you, you got a thousand things. And a thousand things takes a thousand things to watch them and a thousand things to deal with them. And pretty soon, you've lost this, you've lost that, you're into this. And pretty soon in your life with God, you're right there. Now, the good thing, it's a lot easier for you and me to get back to that than it is a church. Rule of history. When a church goes into apostasy, a lot of guys make this mistake. When a church or a movement goes into apostasy, there is no way to reverse the process. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. When a church or a movement goes into this section here or this section here, nothing you can do to bring it back. Nothing you can do. There's people in dead churches in this city 
that are going to waste their whole life trying to bring that church back to where it once was because they've never learned the lesson of church history that once you get past the moving into the machine or the monument, there's no bringing it back. All you can do is get out of it. That's all you can do. Two men in history made the fatal mistake. One was Martin Luther. He saw the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. He got out of it. The other one was Erasmus, who was in the same Catholic Church as he was. He saw the same corruption, tried to stay and reform it from within, and got clobbered by it. Never happened. These are the absolute lessons, the fundamental backbone of church history that you have to learn that all history is built on. It'll run through a man, it'll run through a movement, it'll run through a machine, and then it'll go into a monument. And I don't care who it is, where it is, you can take another one. It's a contemporary. D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was one of the greatest preachers of Chicago that you ever saw in your life back in the 1800s. He built Moody Church. He also built Moody Bible Institute. D.L. Moody was a man. He put forth a movement. But what happened was, after his death, it went into a machine, and now you go into Moody Church today, it's like walking into a meat locker. It's cold as can be, and everything in it dead. It's infallible. It's infallible. It's absolutely infallible. Once you understand the infallible cycle that I just laid out for you, when we get into church history, it'll help you see what happened to the early church between 100 and 300 A.D. It'll help you stay on task and see what happened in the German Reformation of 1500 to 1800. It'll make sense and help you figure out what happened to the American awakening between 1600 and 1900. And then it'll help you figure out what happened to American Christianity from 1900 to 2010. And then you can better understand why most Christians' life are in a mess and most churches are dead today because of that system right there. That cycle will show you why every period of church history will end in disaster. Every one of them. Every dispensation in the Bible, every period of history in the Bible, everything that God ever started out to do, the law of thermodynamics took over and man messed it up and it went into the ground. Now the next thing that Christian needs to be aware of, we've talked about two cities, I've talked about three, it will be the city of Rome. Rome will always be against God. And it's one of the most amazing things about the Bible and its consistency. In my opinion, or your opinion doesn't even matter. I mean, it's just a fact of history. When you start to lay out Rome, and you start to look at Rome in the Bible and in history, Rome had Israel under an iron rule in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was Rome that killed John the Baptist. It was Rome that tried to kill Christ at his birth. It was Rome that hated the teachings of Christ. It was Rome that had him arrested. It was Rome that had him beaten. It was Rome that had him scourged. It was Rome that had him crucified. Crucifixion was a Roman form of capital punishment. It was a Roman soldier to put a spear in his side. It was a Roman soldier to put the nails in his hands and his feet. It was a Roman soldier that cast lots for his garment. It was Rome that persecuted the early Christians of the book of Acts. It was Rome that had James' head cut off in Acts 12. It was Rome that had Paul beaten and persecuted. And it was Rome that came down and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and wind up having Paul killed. 
with that in your mind laid out for you in the book of Acts, why would you ever think that today when somebody tried to give you an NIV or an ASV that came from Rome, you'd think God had anything to do with it? See what church history does? You see how important it is to have the book of Acts firmly down as far as these things of defining where you're going in history? I'll tell you why, because when you get on down the line a little bit, you're going to find Rome coming to the surface. You're going to find Rome coming up with all kinds of things. I, it blows my mind today that when the last pope died, Pope Paul Pepperoni, whatever his name was, absolutely blew my mind driving down 350 Highway to see First Baptist Church of Raytown flying their flag at half mask. It's it just unbelievable to me, to me. And the bottom line is that is because they have no clue of where Rome is at in that Bible and the greatest enemy of Bible Christianity that the world has ever seen has been Rome. When you start to put this thing together, you'll find that everything that goes on in this world, everything that takes place has a seat in Rome. And it just blows my mind that those things happen. Billy Graham uh, mentioned one time that he thought Pope Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived. I mean, what in the world is wrong with you? I'll tell you what's wrong. They don't know their roots. They don't know their church history. They don't know where they've come from. And because of that, they can't discern it. And that's not what I want for this church. Not what I want for you. You see, if you don't have an absolute authority to lay out all this stuff out for you, when you start to read somebody's book on church history or really anti-church history, you might think that something from Rome might be used of God. I mean, you hear Billy Graham say that and you think, well, he's a great godly man. Boy, he's been around. Maybe he's right. No, maybe he's wrong. I don't care if he's a good... Hey, when it comes to his <clears throat> passion for souls... Follow him. When it comes for his love for winning people to Christ and his zeal for God, follow him. When it comes to thinking Pope Paul, the greatest Christian in the world, go roast a weenie. Don't waste your time five seconds with it. But this is how you learn those things. You learn by understanding how the book of Acts lays itself out. Now I'll show you something else. These are the things you have to learn before we get into church history proper because it's going to be the tools that we use when we get down the line. Absolutely vital. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you find uh, uh, the first mention of the Holy Spirit of God. Don't know if you know it or not. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, the first time you find the Holy Spirit of God uh, in your Bible, first time it shows up, the Bible says it's moving. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know that the Holy Spirit of God starts moving in Genesis 1-2 and never stops moving. Now, not only does God want you to know and understand man, movement, machine, and monument, not only does God want you to know the tale of three cities, not only does God want you to know the, the councils are always a bad deal, there's a number of things that God wants you to know, but how in the world would God ever expect us to figure out what God's doing and where he's going if he didn't file a flight plan of where the Holy Spirit was going when it started moving? And he did. And you're going to find coming through your Bible 
You're going to find when you start studying it out and coming through your Bible, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit of God always moves from east to west through history. That's a pattern established in the Bible, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, east to west. When God called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, he went west, Genesis chapter 12. When the Jews entered Palestine, if you notice the passage and study it out, God made them go around from the other side and come in east to west, Numbers 19 through 25. When the Jews go back to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, they went west from the east, Babylon. When Jacob got right and comes home, he goes to the west, Genesis chapter 35, from the east. When you enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, you go in east to west, see? And that's the way Jesus enters in Jerusalem both times. In the book of Acts, the gospel goes uh, to the west, Acts chapter 16. Uh, the book of, uh, uh, in all history goes east to west. All revivals go east to west. And just by a wild stroke of coincidence, back in the 1800s, Horlis Greeley just got it right when he said, go west, young man. The movement of the Holy Spirit of God down through history is traceable. It's traceable because God wants you to always know where he's at and what he's doing. So in church history, we find it moving we find it moving to the west. Find it moving to the west. And you'll see that the gospel goes all over the world from an east to west except one place. There has never been a revival in Rome. And there never will be. All right. Let's talk about the definition of church history from a practical standpoint. We've already commented on the fact that biblical church history is a study of people who make up the body of Christ who were uh, serving the Lord in local assemblies, starting in the book of Acts, uh, uh, to the present. But church history in its most basic form is simply this. And I told you this when we did our Bible basics class because it's the same thing. Uh, because you can't study the Bible without studying history, and the Bible is God's movement down through history of what God is doing. But church history in its most simplest form is simply this. It's the Holy Spirit of God moving from east to west to accomplish the purpose that God wants to accomplish it, and then the devil moving in an opposition to counterfeit it and to stop it. That's church history. You don't have to worry about the 100 years war, the 30 years war, the 40 years war, World War I, World War II. You don't have to worry about the French Revolution, German Revolution, Reformation. If you just get the concept down that basically church history in its lowest common denominator is nothing more than God moving in a westerly direction through the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish his purpose, and then everything in opposition to that is the devil trying to stop it. And that's key. That's the key. Any reader who will carefully study the book of Acts, and we study this in Institute, but you see it there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, God starts to do something. In Acts chapter 4, verse 1, the devil steps in to stop it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, God starts to do something else again. In Acts chapter 5, verse 17, the devil comes in and stop it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 15, God starts doing something again. In chapter 5, verse 40, the devil comes in to stop it. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, God does it again. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, he stops it again. See? That's Satan's satanic immediate response will always be to. Now, this is why, and we'll get into this in great, in great, this great detail later. 
This is jumping ahead, but this illustrates the point. This is why in America, when America was founded in 1600, when the pilgrims got here, and in the early 1700s, God brought seven great awakenings across this country. East to west, see? East Coast, Cumberland Valley, Ohio Valley, Midwest, right on down the line to hit the West Coast. East to west. Seven great awakenings from 1600, and the last great awakening started in America in the 1950s. Seven great awakenings by which God, knowing that the country follows this same thing, our country was founded by our founding fathers. We'll put it a man. They believed the Bible. Most of them weren't saved, but they still believed in God and believed the Bible. You know what they did? They wrote the Bible into the Constitution and founded a republic based on the principles of the Word of God. That was the movement. You know what it is today? Right there. You know how it got there? Went to here. You know how it got to here? Because God kept ejecting himself into those seven great awakenings coming across this country to bring this country back to him, and the devil injected himself seven times into it. That's why you have all your American cults, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Church of Christ, Seventh-day Adventists. They're all the American cults. They all counter what God did in the seven awakenings, and there's seven of them that counter what God did. History's not really hard when you understand some of these basic things. For you and for me, church history is a forewarning and a forearming of every Bible believer in the world against the foremost enemy of God and the Bible and every true Christian that ever lived, and that'll be the Roman Catholic Church. You will find the most important thing you get out of church history is that behind every political movement, behind every war in history, once you come to the grips and understand that history is nothing more than God moving in a westerly direction to do what he's got to do and a devil moving in opposition, you're going to find that if we get into church history that God has a church, the devil's got a church. Devil's, God's church is for one thing, putting together God's program. The devil's church is for one thing, that's stopping the program God put together. And there's no reason why in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that she's called uh, uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. All false churches come from Rome every one of them. And we'll get into that when we get down the line a ways, but not tonight. When I was growing up, the great threat was communism. We were in the height of the Cold War. I still remember as a seventh grader the night we went to school, and I knew I was in trouble with the teacher. And uh, to me, the Cuban Missile Crisis had just started. Cuban Missile Crisis started in 1963, two, two, 1962. I was 12 years old. To me, knowing I had to go face my teacher with my parents that night, a nuclear attack would have really helped me out. <laughs> I thought any minute, I'm waiting for that big flash over the sky. <laughs> that seemed a lot better than sitting there in front of my teacher with my parents finding out why my grades weren't very good. But here I am. <clears throat> when I grew up, it was a Cold War, see? We thought we were going to have another war with Russia. It happened right after World War II. And, of course, Russia starts taking all the different countries in Europe. They all fall. Hungary falls. Czechoslovakia falls. Uh, uh, very slowly, you know, they all fall. Then in, 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 the, in the Indonesia, you know, in time, uh, Thailand falls and Vietnam falls, and it all goes down the tubes. All becomes communist. And, of course, uh, America is, you know, trying to fight the, the communism, and she's trying to fight it again. Uh, 
uh, in a, from the Roman Catholic Church standpoint. We, we'll get into all that when we get into it. I'll show you how in those days as today the Roman Catholic Church ran this government, but that's down the line. But we were all afraid of communism, say, scared, scared to death. That was the threat. Of course, the true threat back then was not communism. The true threat back then was using communism as the threat so they could take over the government and do everything that was in it. That was the Roman Catholic Church. The true threat today is not communism anymore. Communism is gone. The threat today is terrorism, Muslims. Okay. I've learned this, ladies and gentlemen, over the years. I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I've watched things. I've, I observe things, especially history things. I'll tell you this. Whatever the threat out there that's portrayed to be the threat out there will always be the smokescreen so the real threat can be underneath the scenes getting the job done. And I guarantee you as I sit here tonight, I guarantee you the threat that you have to worry about is not some Muslim putting a bomb down his pants and blowing himself up on an airplane. <laughs> that's not the threat you've got to worry about. That's the threat that's portrayed. You've got people tonight that are right around this world thinking the Illuminati is going to take over the world, you know, and the Illuminati, Illuminati means the illuminated ones, you know, who see and all this thing. They don't have a clue where the Illuminati started. You know where the Illuminati started? The Illuminati started with the Roman Catholic Church, along with the Knight Templars and all of the other things that go along with it, see? They ain't got a clue. You ain't got to worry about the Illuminati. You ain't got to worry about the Muslims. What you better worry about has been at work for about 6,000 years and is right on schedule and uses everything out there as a smoke cream. Remember that time I told you in Job chapter 41, we studied on a Thursday night over there where it talks about the devil and it says, who can discover the face of his garments? And I showed you down through history that there's seven garment changes the devil goes through in history. You know where the garment changes are, you know what he's doing. And the last garment change for you and me was in, 19, uh, in the 1940s. I don't care if it's the Crusades, I don't care if it's the Thirty Years' War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, or Central America, or Bosnia, or, or what's going on over in the Middle East right now, I guarantee you at the bottom of the pile, holding the ball, was the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was the, only, was the only religion on this planet that recognized Arafat in the Palestinian state, brought him into the Vatican. You better watch it, but over there in your Bible, over there in your Bible, over there in Revelation, when it talks about the Antichrist, this thing, one of the little things God just sticks in there. Right in the middle of tribulation period when it's all going on and God's bringing the judgment down, he says two little things down there that just leaves most people uh, up against the wall. And it did me for a long time until we got into the thing. You know what he says? He tells the angels destroying the earth to hurt not two things, the oil and the wine. Somebody says, what is that? But why not, why, what's he saying? Why not to, not, not to hurt the oil and the wine? I'll tell you why. Because the oil is the Arabs and the wine is the Roman Catholic Church and no guys are in cahoots in the tribulation period. Mark it down. I know you think I'm mad. That's okay. Now this shows you why we have an absolute need for church history. I'm going to do this class and then probably take three or four months off and then I'll, I'll do another class. I've come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is vital. Remember those gates that we talked about uh, back when, and I laid them out for you, uh, that you didn't know what they were because you didn't remember them over there in Nehemiah? One of those gates is called the old gate. And the old gate represents that this church always needs to have a ministry that is preparing the new people that come in, much like yourself, some of you, of where you come from, your heritage. Christianity, Christians today are in a real mess. 
The average child of God has no heritage today. He has no concept of where he comes from or where he's going. I, I, I just, I, and I don't, I, you know, I, I, I marvel sometimes. I just marvel sometimes at the lack of, of perception people have about the world they live in. It, it just overwhelms me. It just overwhelms me. And, uh, you know, most of God's people has no idea where he's going. Uh, consequently, he has no perception of where he's at and what he's doing. The roots of any particular movement, rather it be Christianity or not, is the key to that movement. And the real bottom line bedrock thing that cements the Bible into your life will be church history. Personally, my own personal opinion, if a person, a man or a woman, doesn't understand church history in a thorough sense, they'll never reap the full benefit of understanding everything in the Bible and everything God has for them. It's just that simple. Because the, the key to any particular movement will be the roots of that movement. And uh, without it, the person has no moorings, no anchor. He cannot trace his line to find out who his people are. And that's very frankly why I could take, and probably some of you could go into any church that claims to be a, let's just pick on the Baptist tonight. You could go into any Baptist church in this city, pick any Christian out of there that's a deacon, and sit down with him and probably talk him out of his salvation in 15 minutes or less. If you couldn't talk him out of it, you could get him so confused he'd be doubting what he's believing. You know why? Doesn't know where he comes from. I say words to you like J. Frank Norris, and you just got people just look at me. And yet we wouldn't even be here without him. I say, I say things like uh, uh, Mordecai Ham, Sam Jones. I throw names out like, uh, like you talked about, Lester Roloff. People just look at him. And they're just named in the last 50, 60 years. And yet we, we go to church, we're in a church, but if you had tonight prove by opening up your Bible and laying out history that you're in the right church, you couldn't do it. No, I'm not chiding you for that. I'm saying we're going to change that because one of the gates we have to have in our church is the old gate. And uh, that's why, you know, this year with everything else we're doing, I didn't open this up to the whole church. It was voluntary. But the bottom line, it's going to be based on, uh, you know, it's going to be based on the fact that uh, we introduce you to the old gate. If you stay with this class and go through this thing, I don't care how young a Christian you are. There's enough people in here that will help you, whether you're male or you're female, get the material uh, and help you put your syllabus together. You want to get an easy reading book on church history that you wrote. You know what I tell you about your Bible? I tell you about you want to study Bible. I mean, there's some good ones. But if you want the real study Bible, the best study Bible you could ever have is your own, the one you put your notes in. That's the best study Bible you can have. You know the best book on church history you could ever have is the one you write. I'm saving you 15 years. Thank you very much. I'm saving you 15 years of labor. I'm saving you hours upon hours of reading some of those dumbest, boring material you ever get in your life. All for the purpose of writing my book on church history. My job as a pastor and as a Christian is to make your job easier. I spent the time so you wouldn't have to do it. That's the way it's supposed to work. 
you're supposed to spend, spend the time getting it down, so when I'm dead and gone, you can help somebody out with it and save their time. That's the process. That's the process. My job is to learn everything I've learned and paid the price to learn is to get it to you. Your job is to get it and learn it and get it to somebody else. That's the process. That's the process. And that's why the average Christian has no idea what he believes in. I mean, for instance, all through the New Testament, you go all through the book of Acts and all through the New Testament with Titus and Timothy, you know what? You don't find one church building anywhere, any place. How come we have them today? You know there's no place in the Bible where anybody ever has a Sunday school? Why don't churches have them? You can't find one place in that Bible where anybody ever kept records of attendance or offerings, but churches do today. Why is that? you got 140 million people in this country that call themselves Christians and they're called Catholic. And yet you couldn't find the word Catholic in the Bible if you stayed up all night and looked for it with a laser beam and a flashlight. Why is that? This church is a Baptist church. And yet you can't find one Baptist church anywhere in the New Testament. Anywhere. Anywhere. Why is that? You see, that's what the Church of Christ pulled on us a couple of months ago, see? You say to them, well, you don't find a Church of Christ anywhere in the Bible and try to play that game. They come back and say, well, you don't find a Baptist church in there. I mean, and they're right. But you better know why it's not and where it comes in. I'll show you something else. In the New Testament, every widow over 60 years old is supported by the church. Churches don't do that today. You see, and that's the problem with Christianity. And what God's people don't get today, they don't have a clue of what happened when Acts chapter 28 shut down and Sears and Penny and Walmart opened up on the other end. Something's lost in between. And therefore, they don't have any roots. You've got to know your roots. And church history is the reality of those roots. Now, I told you that the book of Acts was the foundation of church history. And you should have down now the tale of three cities. We'll get into more of it as we go through, but those are the major components. You should have the council concept. You should have all those things that I have laid out. And now God gave us a book in the Bible that is that would be the structure of church history. And that'll be the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've ever noticed how your New Testament is laid out. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the book of Acts. Then you have Paul's writings, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Then you get into the general epistles. You've got Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then you've got the book of Jude. And the last book of your Bible, which forms the capstone of your Bible, is the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation is the book that, after everything he's laid out, pulls all the material together in a systematic format of the New Testament. It's absolutely the greatest single book of understanding the uh, structure of church history. And when you got the book of Revelation down as far as, and I'm not talking about understanding it as far as all the chapters and all the books are, I'm talking about understanding how it fits as the structure of church history. You've got to start looking at the book of Revelation in a total different aspect. We always look at it as the great book on prophecy, and I'm not taking anything away from it, it is. But more than that, in your Bible, the book of Revelation forms the capstone of your Bible. 
The book of Revelation is the end of your Bible, the last book, and in the last book, he now recaps structurally everything that you need to know in church history and beyond. Let me show you how it works. And you want to get this down. Some of you probably already have it. Got Revelation chapter 1 through 4. Then you have Revelation chapter uh, 5 through uh, 18. Then you have Revelation chapter 19. Then you have Revelation chapter 20. Then you have Revelation chapter 21. Then you have Revelation chapter 22. You have a division there, 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 and a division there. I'm going to change this right here in just a minute. We got Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Then we have Revelation chapter 4, what we want. Now, can everybody see that? That's your outline of the structure of church history. Let me show you what you got. When you look at the book of Revelation and you want to figure the book of Revelation out as far as a structural book, here's what you look at. Two chapters, Revelation 4, Revelation 19. Those two chapters are the key to understanding the structure of the book of Revelation and church history. Now let's look at what we got. In Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we have addressed Seven churches. There are seven churches laid out in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Revelation chapter 4, you're going to find a door opens up and somebody goes out. In Revelation chapter 5 through 18, you're going to find somebody going through the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 19, you're going to find that door opens up in heaven again. This time, somebody comes down. Revelation chapter 20, you're going to find the millennium. Revelation chapter uh, 21, you're going to find uh, New Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 22, you're going to find uh, eternity. Now look at your chart up here. Here it comes, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, seven churches, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Revelation chapter 4, a door opens in heaven, he hears a voice like a trumpet saying, come up hither, all right? Chapter 4 is right there, rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church, we got Revelation chapter 5 through 18, which will match up to the seven years tribulation period right here. Revelation chapter 19, that same door opens up, somebody comes down, second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, throne of David, thousand year reign of Christ. Revelation chapter, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 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 20, uh, 21 will be right uh, here. And then Revelation chapter 22 will be off the wall there by the thermostat someplace, out into eternity. That's the structure. Now you say, wow, that's really neat. The Bible follows Bob's chart. No, the chart follows the Bible. <laughs> but thank you very much. 
That charge is based off of that right there. And that forms the structure for church history. See what he did? He gave you the whole New Testament. And then at the end, the last book, the recap, he gave you one book that puts everything into perspective. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 will start right here, run up to here. Revelation 4 will be there. Revelation 5 through 18 will be there. Revelation 19 will be there. Revelation 20 there. Revelation 21 there. Revelation 22 out there. That's how simple it is. Every event, prophetically, that's going to take place in the church age and beyond is laid out in the book of Revelation. Therefore, the church book of Revelation forms our structure for church history. What we learn from this is that church history is broken down by God into seven periods. That's how we're going to study it. Philip Schaff is oblivious to this. You couldn't find Philip Schaff following the book of Revelation and laying down church history into seven formats if his life depended on it. You couldn't find it in Newell's book. You couldn't find it in anybody's material today because nobody starts with the Bible as the final authority that dictates what church history should be. And if you don't start with the Bible, you're done before you get into it. So we learn then that, uh, that uh, there are seven periods in church history. God takes the book of Revelation and completely shows you the order of events that make up the whole Bible and then gives you seven divisions that you must have to get the right biblical perspective of church history. Now, that's not all. Once we start this study, we start coming through these seven periods, we're going to find three more divisions we got to follow. And we're going to find that these are dealing with uh, uh, the men that we're going to be dealing with. When you start dealing with the vast amount of material that we have in church history, you have to make follow the natural divisions. And there's three divisions that will help us as far as the men we're going to have to deal with. Here's what they're called. We'll be making reference to these all through it. This is the background of church history, the things you've got to have down. And the reason why I'm not doing this every, every week and, and every other week is to get you to learn the key things down. We're going to have a group called Apostolic Fathers. We're going to have a group called Anti-Nicene Church Fathers. And then we're going to have a group called Post-Nicene Church Fathers. Now, let me explain it. You say, well, that's kind of scary, Church Fathers. The Bible says, call no man father upon the earth. I'm not talking about in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about in the sense of the fathers in the church that led the church in the right sense. Let's look at the, talk about the first one. Apostolic church fathers, who will they be? We're going to name these guys in great detail, and you'll have a whole biography of them when we're done, or capsule biography, anyhow. All right, the first one we, first one we, we, we want to talk about is apostolic fathers. That would bring us up to probably the end of the first century around 90 A.D. and beyond. That would be the men who were won to Christ or influenced by Christ himself and the apostles. When the apostles die off, the church is carried on by the apostolic. Apostolic means apostles, apostolic. 
the apostolic church fathers, the fathers that carried on after the death of the apostles. All right, that'll take us up to 325 A.D. The next group, that'll be right here, Council of Nicaea. The next group is called the Anti-Nicaean Church Fathers. Ante means before. And that'll be, the, that'll be the group that picks up after the Apostolic Church Fathers when they die off, and that'll represent about 150 years to 200 years uh, up to the Council of Nicaea in 325. So they're called Anti-Nicaean. Nicaea. Anti-Nicaean. In other words, they're the Church Fathers after the... Uh, apostles die off, after the apostolic church fathers die off, the anti-Nicene fathers take over. The third group is the post-Nicene. Post is after the Council of Nicaea. That'll be everybody coming up through here. Three groups. Three groups. Now within those three groups, we're going to classify them in three different forms. And you'll find that all three classifications, apostolic fathers, anti-Nicene fathers, and post-Nicene fathers all fall into these three categories, and we will divide them out for you when we get there. The first group will be biblical people, people who follow the Bible. The second group will be anti-biblical people. They'll be people that are totally against the Bible. And of course, the third group will be compromising people, people who try to play the middle of the road. And these three aspects are very, very crucial in understanding church history and putting it together, understanding who these people are. Every mess we're into today, every problem the church has, every goofy thing that's going on today can be traced back to these church fathers and the people uh, that represent the biblical ones, the anti-biblical ones, and the ones who just compromise. Very important. At the same time, as we deal with the seven periods of church history and we begin to put the men who lived into the three categories, uh, we'll also start to see two lines of thinking, two lines of teaching begin to develop. And this is where every Christian teacher of, of, Christian, uh, excuse me, of church history will get off the track and never get back and never learn because they reject the Bible as the final authority. And you're going to see it on our chart right here. It starts right about here. You see it splits. You got one line going down the bottom, and you got one line going up the top. This bottom line will represent the devil's church. That top line will represent God's church. It's just that simple. Church history is not hard when you get the fundamental things to help you keep it on track. And you're going to find that everything down through here follows down this line, and you're going to find that all these things go back to the book of Acts, with Antioch and Rome, excuse me, Alexandria and Rome. Everything on the top line is going to run from Antioch into the Byzantine Empire and then right on down the line. And Antioch is within the Byzantine, we'll talk about the Byzantine Empire when we get into that portion of it, but the Byzantine Empire is where, is the later territory where Antioch was in the New Testament. Antioch and the Byzantine Empire was the hotbed of Bible Christianity all down through the Dark Ages. We'll get into that when we talk about it. And... Uh, you're going to find these two lines start out very slowly at first. We'll identify them, and then we'll begin to appear. Uh, they'll begin to appear in time uh, all through church history, uh, on one side or the other. From these two lines here, and these two areas—one out of Rome and Alexandria, Egypt; the other one out of Antioch of Syria. 
uh, you're going to find two types of Christians, two schools of thought, two types of churches, two philosophies of life, two types of preaching, two types of worship, and oh yes, last but not least, two types of Bibles. By the time we get to 1200 A.D., the lines will be very clear to us who hold the Bible as due to our hearts and uh, as the final authority, and, uh, and those, that, uh, those that don't see it will be doomed to repeat the lessons of history. Old John Busquette gave me a little card Sunday, and I wrote it down in here, a thought that I wanted to give you. It's a good thing here. Let me see where I, f I wrote it in here someplace. I just maybe passed it up already. If I don't, I won't quote it right, and I'll screw it up. It's like me telling a joke. I never get it right. Oh, here it comes. This is great. You always hear me say that the men that the only thing that men never learn from history is they never learn from history, and history always repeats itself. He gave me this quote. He's always finding these things. He's a great researcher. He says, Every time history repeats itself, the price of the lesson goes up. <laughs> Boy, that is true. That is true. That is absolutely true. Well, we'll hold up there. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, take the material that I've given you. Joe, I guess there's no way we could twist your arm into doing an outline for everybody, is there? I mean, he'd put you on the spot, but uh, you put them on the spot all over time when you pull them over and give them a ticket, so what do you like it? Huh? How do you like it? Huh? <laughs> You, can you do that? Okay. And uh, if you want to make copies when you get them in the church here, we can make copies for everybody. Uh, I'm not doing that so you don't have to do the work, uh, but Joe is a great outliner. He does a great job, uh, as best as I've ever seen, of outlining uh, stuff like this. And we'll get you a copy of it, uh, and uh, you can use that to go on. But what I would do is this. Start you a book. Go home, get a fresh notebook. Use the notebook you have in front of you and the CDs that you're going to pick up and, uh, and start going over it and get Joe's as a, as a thing that you, you, you get all the little pieces. You don't miss any. Joe will take what I said and condense it down for you in a very good way that will help you get it concise, that you can get an outline out of it and then go back and listen to the tape and take your own notes and put it in. Start your own book. Now, it's as simple as this, guys. Don't take this in a bad way and don't take it wrong. I don't really care if you get this or not. I'm enjoying it doing it for me. But you're only going to get out of this what you're going to put in it. And I'm just telling you right now, if you're ever going to get to the place in your life where God, you really ever get used of God, and you get into a place where you really are going to make a difference in people's lives, you're going to have to know this. You may say to yourself right now, well, what in the world is church history? I went to high school and I studied American history and I haven't learned it, used it one time since I left. Yeah, that's why you're a dunce today. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you couldn't carry on, an, you know, 
an intelligent conversation. That's why you think manual labor is the president of Mexico. I mean, you know, you, you just, you gotta get this down. You cannot separate the God of history from the God of the Bible. It's absolutely crucial. And when you get it down and you, you get a handle on it, then you wanna always go over it. I go over it at least two times a year. And in, in, in light of all the other times that people are asking me questions about it, but my own personal world, two times a year, I'll go through these 19 volumes. I've got mine down in such a way that, and I, maybe I'm just used to them, but I can just read them like a book. I'll use it in times that maybe I'll forget something and I wanna, or I'm doing something else and I need a quick resource. So I'll go to 